Sutra 2 The restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. There in the casket, I learned something about life and death. It barely mattered what I desired, because death waited all this time for me to take my very last breath. I prayed and I prayed, but death made me so afraid. How could I let go of things I loved? And where was the God up above? I called out to the Great Spirit and to all the angels and saints watching over. But the more I begged for our survival, the more the cat's breath grew slower and slower. How could anyone understand death's motive? It wouldn't ask for my permission before it forced me to let go. Oh, the pain! It never stayed the same. It only grew worse. And then I realized my family and friends must have left with the hearse. They'd go on about their days, and so they'd gather around before their lives dispersed. But I was left dying in slow motion. Oh, I was cursed! My cat died on February 19th, and someday I knew I'd be next. That's when I noticed a certain feeling arise as my entire reality began to collapse. How else could I describe it? except that everything had gone wrong. I was pinned with nowhere to go, watching the terror of life's ending go on and on. I was running out of breath, and the cat had died. I remember when she passed, because for a brief moment there was joy when I cried. Her suffering was over, but my suffering stayed right here. I was left alone to face all the terrible things that I had come to fear. I reached around in the casket, since there was nowhere the darkness allowed my eyes to look. Just a cat's body and I. But then I felt the pages beside me when I remembered that blue book. But what good was one book, especially when you're dying alone? Well, I didn't care about the title when I grabbed it, but I remembered seeing a holy man sitting upon a throne. But not a gold throne, just a simple gray stone. I couldn't see him in the darkness but I remember how he smiled, as if he'd been sitting there for a while, and why it was a smile that got my attention. But why didn't I look inside, or read any of the lines? This book was of no use in this dark casket while my body slowly died. Oh, I cried and I cried, but my soul wouldn't die, and after enough time, all I could do was open the book and try to look inside. Upon a random page, Still the darkness wouldn't let me read the words, and so this darkness cloaked my body, mind, and spirit while the chaos in my mind grew absurd. So much horror that would never again be heard. And why bring a book into a casket? There were countless better things I should have took than a book. Why not grab a knife, a phone, cat food, or at least one more delicious meal that was well cooked? As time began to wind down, so did my breath, and after long enough, I came to terms with the idea that I would soon pass on just like the cat, then my body would be at rest. With the cat's body in my arms, my lungs began to mimic the tide. My cat had to let go ahead of me, and so with each exhale, I began to sink into that place where all of us would die. But then I heard something strange. I heard a little bug buzzing. 
I swear the little creature was trapped beside the cat and I, and of course I heard its wings hovering. At once it began to glow. Yes, this was a firefly, like a bug filled with lightning in its backside. But why on earth would this bug have crawled inside? All of us were trapped, bound to die. But now I could see the cover of the blue book when I saw the sage smiling. And this time, I felt such great joy that I smiled when I cried. A moment later it was dark. But who was that unknown Swami from the ancient east? And suddenly the firefly lit its lightning lamp when I read the name of the book. This was the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Just as I said it, I swear I could hear an old sage laugh. Why, I was buried underground, but how was I able to hear someone else's voice at last? Was he up above me, or was he here by my side? Who was the man on the cover, and why could I hear him as if he'd crawled right inside? And so I had to take a peek, one last look. This time I started from the very first page, when I opened the sutra book. As I turned open the cover, my situation had become quite dire. I was almost out of breath, and I knew how the truth of death would soon transpire. Then came that lightning bug again, and so it lit its lamp, another gentle glow as I began to let go, but this time I surrendered without a fight. I could hear a voice as I read. It was of a man I never knew, and so he said, Die, die, into this love, dying into the truth. Once you die into this love, you can receive the spirit in full. Die, die, and don't fear this death, for you shall rise dancing from this soil. Die, die, and detach from this self, for this self is a chain, and you are like a prisoner to the lower self. Take hold of an axe and pierce your way out. When you break free of this prison, you are the rulers, you are the kings and queens. Die, die before that beautiful king and queen. Once you die before this ruler, you are sovereign, a protector of the divine regime. Die, die, and come out from behind this cloud. Once you abandon this cloud, you are the brilliant moon in full lighting the way. Silence, silence, for silence is the breath of this death. When you roar in silence, what speaks is life itself, said its voice. I hear these words, but they are absurd. What are you trying to say with these words that I have heard? Soul retrieval. This is the path of the sacred protector, but in that body, you've gotten too attached to a human's exterior. Don't you wonder about what's within this moment, and how it never seems to end? The soul goes on forever, but somehow the body hates when the living function has to end," said the voice. But what about the forever? We've been here right now. However, life should be lived as one great endeavor. A journey to the end, where a new beginning lasts forever, and once we get there, we remember this body is a place we must let go. And that's why you found the blue book, my son. The sutras are the only thing every man, woman, and child must know," said the voice. A sutra? Yes, a thread, or something like a strand. A divine connection 
that relinks our souls with the hearts through our mind, which connects back to every single human. It's the only thing that cannot die. The Holy Spirit cannot break. If you align your life with the seer from the sutras, then you have aligned with our spirit's highest fate, said the voice. Am I losing my mind? How can I hear you when I'm almost dead? I am the light within, Shiva Shakti, is what the voice said. Shiva Shakti? Like the invisible force within a stream, which is the current of a river. These are two different things, but together they are heading on the same path the water calls down river. Not one without the other, they are in union together. You might think you're dying, my boy, but this is rebirth. A spiritual soul never says never, he said. My intuition was onto something. Then the firefly reveled its light when I opened the next few pages beyond the cover. Who would have known that all the secrets in the universe were written down? And here I found the secret ability to contemplate and discover. I had no use for this body, and so I went in with the way of these threads. I followed along one word at a time to hear what this ancient sage had said. The word is humbly offered to the beloved and revered yoga master, Tri Guru Dev Swami Shiva Maharaji, and to all who seek understanding and mastery over their minds through the glorious science of yoga, he said. As I took a deep breath in, I wondered if this was the last breath my body would ever know, and so I let go to be one with the current of love, which was the river of truth, and there I surrendered to Shiva Shakti's flow. Beloved students, it gives me great joy to witness the expansion of this book. For many years, these Yoga Sutras have been like a Bible to me. They have helped me in many situations on my own path to God and have given me invaluable guidance at many points. I appreciate the clarity, simplicity, and thoroughness with which Maharishi has presented the entire yoga. He has beautifully presented it as a rigorous and complete science with all its ramifications, from the most elementary to the most highly advanced points. I feel it is a living scripture to illuminate our spiritual path. The Yoga Sutras are very concentrated and brief. Study them slowly and carefully, then meditate upon them. You can even learn some of the most important and useful ones by heart. This is not just a book to quickly read and then toss away like a popular novel, nor is it a scholarly work to fulfill your mind with a lot of philosophy and theories. It is a practical handbook. Every time you hear the sutras, read them and practice them until you absorb more for your growth. Let us slowly try to understand more and what little we understand. Let us try to practice. Practice is the most important factor to lead us to God. Let us know that all these ideas and practices are there to help us forget our personal selfishness and broaden our minds more and more. As my master Swami Shiva used to say, just be good and do good. It's very simple. Be good and do good and the entire wisdom will be yours. Every day let us check our progress and see that we grow a little better. Every day should elevate us a little, broaden our attitudes, reduce our selfishness, 
and make us better masters over our body, senses, and mind. This is the kind of yoga that will really help us. And let that highest goal, that one day we should all attain the highest samadhi, the totally liberated state. This liberation is not for the remote future or for when we die. It is to be lived in the very midst of our world. May all the holy sages, the founders of yoga, and all the saints bless us to achieve this goal with pure minds and deep meditation. May the sacred science of yoga inspire us to become such masters, to find peace and joy within ourselves, and to share the same with all humanity. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. May God bless you, he said. And there I felt a force, galloping like a white horse, but it was invisible like the wind, and somehow it was connected back to God's source. I could hear its hooves, and there the mind ran over my previous life. Meanwhile the man continued to teach, all the while the hooves pedaled off into the night. At first I could not see, but I knew this horse was free, and the more I listened to that voice, the more I heard its stampede come from within me. There was something upon that horse, for that horse carried an illuminated treasure upon its back. This jewel was glowing and magnificent. Then the horse turned blue, as if it was on its way to attack. What is it? The jewel of altruism and selfless service. And when paired with the lotus of wisdom, we plant it in the heart, and it becomes indivisible to purify the impure body, speech, and mind. Om Mane Padme Om, said the voice. And what about the lotus? The light of truth universal shrine. And so the jewel is planted in the center of the lotus, right in the cavern of the heart. That's where the awareness should be focused. Om Mane Padme Om, he said. Whose jewel is it? Ours, said the teacher. Mine? All of ours, said the teacher. Well, how do I get it? You let go, said the teacher. But how do I let go? You'll know, said the teacher. Can you teach me to let go? Or how else would I know? And after that, then where do I go? You surrender to Shiva Shakti flow, said the teacher. Ah, so, the Shiva Shakti flow. But when? Now, he answered. But how? Yoga, he paused. What do you mean by yoga? Union, or relinking and rejoining to the divine. But in time, right now, just know that all is fine. So the actual meaning of yoga is the science of the mind. Go into that maze, it's like a great labyrinth, and let's see what you come to find, he said. What will I find in this darkness? Examine the myth of Sisyphus, how the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Sages from the ancient east call this wind horse, which is the Shiva Shakti soul. The spiritual source is woven through everyone that makes all living beings whole. Die to who you were and become all that you were meant to be. Once you gaze upon the jewel of the spiritual soul, you will realize what it means to be selfless and free. Gone without a body, 
We are entering through the mind. Come listen while I reveal the way to the jewel in the lotus that you are searching to find. First, we need to know more about our minds, how they work and how we can work with them. This field is closer to us than anything else in life. It may be interesting and useful to know how to fix a car or cook a meal or how atoms are split, but something that holds a more immediate and vital interest for thoughtful people is their own mind. What is the mind? Does it determine our behaviors and experience? Or do we create and sustain its activity? What is consciousness? Can we turn within ourselves to study and understand? Perhaps even control the mind? That is the subject matter of the ancient science of Raja Yoga. Traditionally, the word yoga by itself refers to Raja Yoga, the mental science. With the current interest in expanding consciousness and mental science in general, it is natural that we turn to Raja Yoga. There are of course many Western approaches to the study and control of the mind, each advancing various different concepts and techniques. But compared to these, the ancient yogic science is a great grandfather. For thousands of years, the yogis have probed the mysteries of the mind and consciousness, and we may well discover that much of their findings are applicable to our own search as well. The primary text of Raja Yoga is called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Sutra literally means thread, each sutra being the barest thread of meaning upon which a teacher might expand by adding his or her own beads of experience for the sake of the students. There could be more than 200 threads, traditionally divided into four sections. The first is the portion on contemplation, which gives the theory of yoga and a description of the most advanced stages of the practice of samadhi or contemplation. This probably was given first as an inspiration to the students to begin the practices. The second is the portion of practice. There is philosophy in this section also, but of a more practical nature, and the first five basic steps out of the traditional eight limbs of Raja Yoga are expounded, along with their benefits, obstacles to their accomplishment, and ways to overcome the obstacles. The third section is called the portion of accomplishments, and the fourth is the portion of absoluteness, which discusses yoga from a more cosmic, philosophical viewpoint. It does not need to be known when Sri Shiva Patanjali lived, or even if he was a single person rather than several persons using the same title. Some estimates of the date of the sutras range from 5000 BC to 300 AD. In any case, he did not in any sense invent Raja Yoga, but rather systemized it and compiled the already existing ideas and practices. Since that time, he has been considered the father of yoga, and his sutras are the basis for all of the various types of meditation and yoga which flourish today in their myriad forms. He said, so what is this approach? What do they call it? Integral, or the yoga of synthesis, as it takes into consideration all the aspects of an individual, physical, emotional, mental, intellectual, and social. You should know that integral yoga is not different in any way from Raja Yoga. Union is union. When the link to God has been made, 
It does not matter what you call it, or if a religion claims it, but rather it just is. Raja Yoga itself is an integral approach that takes into consideration the entire life of a person. Its philosophy is scientific. It welcomes, and in fact, demands experiential verification by the student. Its ultimate aim is to bring about a thorough metamorphosis of the individual who practices it sincerely. Its ultimate aim is to bring about a thorough metamorphosis of the individual who practices it sincerely. Said the teacher, a metamorphosis? Yes, the bloom into fullness, wholeness, and abundance. Look and find it now. Can you remember the feeling of Windhorse's spiritual jewel? She is always galloping as the river of Shiva Shakti goes on forever. The goal is nothing less than a total transformation of a seemingly limited physical, mental, and emotional person into a fully illuminated, thoroughly harmonized, and perfected being from an individual with likes and dislikes, pains and pleasures, successes and failures, to a sage of permanent peace, joy, and selfless dedication to all of creation. We see the fruition of this science in Sri Swami Shiva Saraswati Sachidananda. He was born and brought up in a small village in South India. He later studied agriculture, science, and technology, and worked in various technical and commercial fields. Not satisfied with any of these things, he made the pursuit of yoga his full-time occupation, practicing first with the help of books and later at the feet of many of India's great sages and saints, in 1949, he came into the community of Sri Swami Sivananda in Rishikesh. In Master Sivanandi, he found his guru or spiritual teacher. He took monastic initiation from Master Sivananda and lived, worked, and taught at Sivananda Ashram for several years until he was asked by the master to bring the teachings of yoga to Sri Lanka. From there, Sri Gurudev was invited to the other countries in the Far East and then in 1966 to the West. He never called himself an exclusive member of any one faith, group, or country, but rather dedicated himself to the principle that truth is one, paths are many. From that inclusive vision, he went wherever he was invited, bringing together people of all backgrounds and beliefs. He felt that yoga should stand for and exemplify the message of respect for all the different paths, religions, and that all sincere seekers should realize their common spirit and goal. He dreamed of creating a permanent place where all people could come together and worship under one roof in a shrine that glorified both the great religious traditions of the world and at the same time the one truth or the light of God Patanjali was the epitome of acceptance of all methods, religions, traditions, and a broad-mindedness of approach. He did not limit his instructions to one particular technique, to members of any particular religion or philosophy or in any other way. He gave general principles and used specifics only for examples. For instance, in delineating object for meditation, rather than saying, Jesus is the only way, or only meditating on a sound vibration or mantra will bring the yogi results. 
he simply gave various possibilities to choose from and then concluded that we should meditate on anything a person may choose which is elevating. Every time you hear these words, you may want to add one or two sutras to your memory bank. May the greatness of all the realized yogis of every tradition be upon us, that we may succeed in realizing the peace and joy which is the divine truth within us. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, said the teacher. But great teacher, if I am here to die, then why wait? Why not suicide? The longer we live, the more opportunities we have to give. By living to the fullest, we can heal the karma of our life, our families, and our world. So rather than quit, we must be gentle, as we are called to serve others and to forgive. He said, The idea of suicide had arisen out of nowhere because I remembered a time when I was stuck in a casket and abandoned with no familiar joy or love. But what if the realization of the meaninglessness and the absurdity of life requires suicide? Life does follow an absurd condition. We build our life on the hope for tomorrow, yet tomorrow brings us closer to death and to the ultimate enemy. People live their lives as if they were not aware of the certainty of death. If the world was to be stripped of its common romanticism, the world is a foreign and strange inhumane place. The true knowledge is impossible, and rationality and science cannot explain the world. Their stories ultimately end in meaningless abstractions and metaphors. This is the absurd condition, and from the moment absurdity is recognized, it becomes a passion, the most harrowing of all. It is not the world that is absurd, nor human thought. The absurd arises when the human need to understand meets the unreasonableness of the world, when the appetite for the absolute and for unity meets the impossibility of reducing this world to a rational and reasonable principle. Taking the absurd seriously means acknowledging the contradiction between the desire of human reason and the unreasonable world. Suicide, then, should be rejected. Without man, the absurd cannot exist. The contradiction must be lived. Reason and its limits must be acknowledged without false hope. While the question of human freedom in the metaphysical sense loses interest to the absurd man, he gains freedom in a very concrete sense. No longer bound by hope for a better future or eternity, without a need to pursue life's purpose or to create meaning, he enjoys a freedom with regard to common rules. To embrace the absurd implies embracing all the unreasonable world has to offer. Without meaning in life, there is no scale of values. What counts is not the best living, but the most living. Thus, we arrive at the three consequences from fully acknowledging the absurd, revolt, freedom, and passion, he said. So how should the absurd man live? No ethical rules apply as they are all based on higher powers of justification. Integrity has no need for rules. Everything is permitted. And this is not an outburst of relief or of joy, but rather a bitter acknowledgement of a fact. Think of the absurd life of Don Juan, the serial seducer who lives the passionate life to the fullest. There is no noble love, 
but that which recognizes itself to be short-lived and exceptional. Isn't that what life is? Gone in a flash. Someday you will die, just like me. But can you discover that spiritual treasure in which we help set all souls free? He said, free? Are you talking about eternity? I'm talking about the weaver, and so they call him Kalki, said the teacher. Who? There is an absurd man called the Conqueror, or that warrior who foregoes all promises of eternity to affect and engage fully in the moment, that here and now. He chooses to infuse action with contemplation, aware of the fact that nothing can last and no victory is final. Imagine an absurd man as a creator or an artist, since an explanation is impossible. Absurd art is restricted to a description of the myriad experiences in the world. If the world were clear, art would not exist. Absurd creation also must refrain from judging and from alluding to even the slightest shadow of hope. Therefore, it surpasses hope and fear. And so this leads us to your question, freed from suicide and even freed from death. Is there a way that the soul can be at ease when the body has nothing left? That brings us to the myth of Sisyphus, who defied the rulers and put death in chains so that no human needed to die. When death was eventually liberated, and it came time for Sisyphus himself to die, he devised an idea, which led to his escape from the underworld. After capturing Sisyphus, the rulers decided that his punishment would last for all eternity. He would have to push a rock up a mountain. Upon reaching the top, the rock would roll down again, having Sisyphus start over. Sisyphus is Shiva Shakti, the absurd hero who lives life to the fullest, hates death, and is condemned to a meaningless task. Look at the modern world, and to so many modern lives working futile jobs in factories and offices. The workman or workwoman of today works every day in his or her life at the same tasks, and this fate is no less absurd, but it is tragic only at the rare moments when it becomes conscious. I am interested in Sisyphus's thoughts when marching down the mountain to start anew. After the stone falls back down the mountain, during that return, that pause, is when Sisyphus becomes very unique and auspicious. A face that toils so closely to stone is already a stone itself. I see that man going back down with a heavy, yet measured step toward the torment of which he will never know the end. This is the tragic moment when the absurd hero becomes conscious of his wretched condition. He does not have hope, but there is no fate that can be surmounted by scorn. Acknowledging the truth will conquer it, so Sisyphus, just like the absurd man, continues pushing. Even when Sisyphus acknowledges the futility of his task and the certainty of his fate, he is free to realize the absurdity of his situation and to reach a state of contented acceptance. As we gaze at Sisyphus, we see him smile and wink. Can you hear him whisper that all is well? Said the teacher, are you hinting that Sisyphus found peace? Even with great dis-ease, Sisyphus's mind found a way to be free. That is a very similar path to the one named Kalki, he said. But how? 
Yes, that's the question to understand. How is that peace possible in any woman or man? Asked the teacher. Peace? Why, yes, I'd like to be at peace. May all beings be at peace. May all beings be free. May all beings have something to eat. May all beings have a safe place to sleep. This begins our study of Raja Yoga, or Ashtanga, known as Eight Limbs. The Yoga Sutras are expounded by the sage who comprised the first and foremost scripture of yoga, so too I read them now. These sutras, or threads, are combinations of words threaded together. Within the space of these various short sutras, the entire science of yoga is clearly delineated. Its aim, the necessary practices, the obstacles you may meet along the path, their removal and precise descriptions of the results that will be attained from such practices. Are you ready? Asked the teacher. I don't know. I think so. But then again, I'm dying. A river is always ready, but it's never in a rush. Even when Shiva Shakti moves fast, it knows that the auspicious sun is always looking upon us, said the teacher when he winked. The first sutra states, now the exposition of yoga is being made. Deja vu? Devaje, he said. Huh? Born from God, and the exposition of yoga, or instruction, is not a philosophy, but rather a direct instruction on how to practice yoga. Mere philosophy will not satisfy us. We cannot reach the goal by mere words alone. Without practice, nothing can be achieved. This means we discover how knowing is different than understanding. For instance, if we look to the sky, we can say, I see the sky is blue. That is knowing. But to understand why it is blue is to understand the absurdity. Blue? Why blue? And why is the grass green? Why is fire red, blue, and orange? To understand is to practice. Because to understand means we have experience. Practice leads to experience, said the teacher. But about peace and becoming free, where do we find that ease? The second sutra says, Yoga Chitta Vritti Narodaha, which means the restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. He said, the mind stuff? Yes. If the restraint of the mental modifications is achieved, one has reached the goal of yoga, or union with God, which means you are at peace. The entire study of yoga is based on this. If you can control the rising of the mind into ripples, you will experience yoga, or union, which is the peace and ease you seek. He said, then that's when I'm free? You'll see. And as we discuss the meaning of each word of the second sutra, normally, the word yoga is translated as union. But for union, there should be two things to unite. In this case, what is to unite with what? Shiva Shakti. Yes, the current and the river, the method and the wisdom. So here we take the yoga to mean the yogic experience or the experience of this river's flow in the way that the water goes. The extraordinary experience is gained by controlling the modifications of the mind stuff. 
in itself is called yoga. Chitta is the sum total of mind. You should know that within the chitta are different levels. The basic mind is called amkara, or the ego, which is the I feeling. This gives rise to intellect, or discriminative faculty, which is called bodhi. Another stage is called manas, the desiring part of the mind, which gets attracted to outside things through senses. For example, say you are sitting quietly and enjoying the solitude when a nice smell comes from the kitchen. The moment the manas records, I'm getting a fine smell from somewhere. The bodhi discriminates. What is that smell? I think it's cheese. How nice. What kind? Brie? Yes, that's brie cheese. Then once the buddy or intellect, decides, yes, it's a nice piece of brie cheese like we enjoyed in Europe last year, the amkara, or ego, says, oh, is that so? Then I should have some now. These three things happen at once, but so quickly that we seldom distinguish between them. These modifications give rise to the effect to get the cheese. The want was created, and unless you fulfill it by peeping into the kitchen and eating the cheese, your mind won't go back to its original peaceful condition. The want is created, then the effort to fulfill the want, and so once you fulfill it, you are back to your original peaceful position. So normally, you are in the peaceful state. That is the natural condition of the mind. But the chitta vrittis, or the modifications of the mind stuff, disturbs that peace. We should examine the things we want and desire. If we don't get them, like the cheese, we may feel that we are suffering, and until we get what we are looking for, we may obsess where our peace of mind is afflicted. Let's say we do get our perfect desires, and once we get them, we may find peace momentarily. Thinking of buying the perfect car, or the perfect home, or getting the perfect job, Someday, the car will run out of its miles and it will fall apart. Someday, we will grow too old for our home and we will downsize. And someday, we must retire from even the perfect job. We may strive for all to be perfect, but in time, we must face the impermanence that nothing lasts. The idea here is that there is some sort of suffering in our desires, but there can be peace in the mind if we can work with the mind and not be swayed by it. Then we can remain at peace. That is the ultimate goal of yoga. All the differences in the outside world are the outcome of your mental modifications. For example, imagine you have not seen your father since your birth, and he returns when you are 10 years old. He knocks at your door. Opening it, you see a strange face. You run to your mom saying, Mama, there's a stranger at the door. Your mom comes and sees her long-lost husband. With all joy, she receives him and introduces him as your father. You say, Oh, that's not my dad. Only a few minutes before, he was a stranger, and now he has become your dad? Did he change into your dad? He is the same person. Rather, you created the idea of a stranger, then changed it to a dad. That's all. The entire outside world is based on your thoughts and mental attitude. The entire world is your own projection. Your values may change within a fraction of a second. 
Today you may not even want to see the one who was your sweet honey yesterday. If we remember that, we won't put so much stress on outward things. That is why yoga does not bother much about changing the outside world. There is a saying, as the mind, so the person. Heaven and hell are in your own mind. If you feel bound, you are bound. If you feel liberated, you are liberated. Things outside neither bind nor liberate you. Only your attitude toward them does that. That is why whenever I speak to prison inmates, I say, you all feel you are imprisoned and anxiously wait to get outside these walls. But look at the guards, are they not like you? They are also within the same walls. Even though they are let out at night, every morning you see them back here. They always come, and even though you'd love to get out, the enclosure is the same. To them, it is not their prison. To you, it is. Why? Is there any change in the walls? No. You feel it is a prison. They feel that it is a place to work and earn. It is a mental attitude. If, instead of imprisonment, you think of this as a place for your reformation, where an opportunity has been given for you to change your attitude in life, to reform and to purify yourself, you will love to be here until you feel purified. Even if they say, your time is over, you can go. You may say, I am still not purified. I want to be here for some more time. In fact, many such prisoners continue to lead a yogic life even after they leave prison. And they were even thankful for their prison life. That means they took it the right way. So if you have control over the thought forms and change them as you want, you are not bound by the outside world. There's nothing wrong with the world. You can make it a heaven or hell according to your approach. That is why the entire yoga is based upon Chitta Vritti Narodaha. If you control your mind, you have controlled everything. Then there is nothing in the world to bind you, said the teacher. Then this casket is not my prison, and death is not a place where we are trapped. Rather, this book of sutras holds ancient threads which are like a path to mental freedom, much like a secret map. And after that, I let the last breath out. I died in that moment where I could afford to relax. I let go of my past, the old narratives, and even my body when my soul slipped through the cracks. Free from the casket, I was a spiritual soul back upon the land, and beside me was a great white horse with a jewel upon its back, permeating a tremendous fiery force. Who needs a body anyway, especially when you can ride upon wind horse?